Our reading today is, comes from Romans 7, chapter 7, 7 to 25. And we're also reading question 7 and 8, the hydraulic criticism. What should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. I will not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I will not have known what is the covenant of the law had not, had not said, do not covenant. And since seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced me in covenanting of every kind, for every part of the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive, apart from the law, but when the commandments came, sin sprang to life again, and I died. The covenant that was meant for life resulted in death for me. For sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me, and through it killed me. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and just good. Therefore, what is good became death to me. Absolutely not. But sin in order to be recognised as sin was producing death in me. Through what is good, so that through the commandment, sin might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am the flesh, sold as a slave under sin. For I do not understand what I am doing, but I do not practice what I do, but I do what I hate. Now, I, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that is, is good, and now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me, for I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh, for the desire to do what is good with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not know the good that, that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what do I do not want, I am no longer the one that does it, but it is a sin that lives in me. So I discover this law. When I want to do what is good, evil is present. With me, with me, for my inner self, I delight in God's law, but I see a different law parts of my body wagging war against the law of my mind, and taking me prisoner of the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man I am! Will you rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God with my flesh and the law of sin. Question seven. Where does the corrupt human nature come from? 
The answer is, from the fall of disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. This fall was so poisoned our nature that we are born sinners, corrupt from one conception on. And our second question is, but we are so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined to evil. But the answer is yes, unless we are regener regenerated by the Spirit of God. Thank you. Ah, Paul with his convoluted logic and tongue-twisting ways. What does it mean to be deprived? We're looking at the doctrine of total depravity, which is what um, the, the catechism here is talking about. Um, and as we think about this, I think it's instructive for us to think about what the rest of the world has thought about this. And so, uh, as I was looking at this, I, I came across um, some of the writing of Aristotle, as one does, uh, and he says that knowing yourself is the beginning of all wisdom. Knowing yourself is the beginning of all wisdom. So let's, let's park that for a moment and assume that he's right, and we'll get back to that a little bit later on. If knowing yourself makes you wise, then we must ask the question, well, who are we? Do you know who you really are. In some ways, the Bible is massively positive about who we are as people, and at the same time, it can be pretty grim in its assessment of who we are. On the one hand, we are made in God's image, as we heard even this morning in the children's talk. We have the power to build and to shape and discover. We are creative and intellectual, powerful. God has made us, the Bible says, just a little lower than the heavenly beings. Our image-bearing nature gives us dignity and strength and value. It gives us a basis by which we can love uh, and, and care for people, be kind to people. In some ways, human beings are the pinnacle of creation and we are truly special. And that might be a good sermon for another day. Today we're focusing on the Bible's opposite assessments of who human beings are because it's pretty grim in its assessment. Ever since sin came into the world, our image-bearing nature has been so twisted that we are, what the Reformers called, totally depraved. Totally depraved. That's what we're going to be exploring today, and a cheerful, uh, cheerful topic for a beautiful morning. So, what does it mean to be depraved? Now, our depravity is the reason that we are sinful. To be depraved, biblically, means to fail the test of living a life, of doing anything that is pleasing to God. That means that anything we do is, uh, is unable to please God. So all the good works we do, we cannot do for God in a way that pleases Him. We cannot do the good work that God desires us to do. Every time we do even a good thing, we miss the mark, and so we sin. And the thing is that once you break any part of God's law, any part of the perfection that God requires of us, we have broken the entirety of the law. God's standard for living is so far higher than what we are capable of. And any human being who has ever come face to face with the commandments of God has experienced this. I mean, who of us can really truly say that we have loved the Lord our God with all our mind, 
heart, body and strength? What about the times when you have doubted him or didn't trust him or questioned what he was doing, didn't do what he asked? What about the times when you have thought that being a Christian is just so much harder than just living in the world like everyone else? What even about the times when you have failed to love yourself or love your neighbour? What about the times when you have known what the wrong thing was but did it anyway because you thought it looked so good in the moment? What about the times when you have presumed on God's grace and mercy where you thought, oh, I can just go ahead and do this because I can just say sorry again and he must forgive me. And I'm just talking about the things that I do. So what about you? All of us, I think, fail this test. We do not live a life that is pleasing to God. Our life is unable to earn us eternal life. We cannot do the good that is required of God's law. That's what it means to be depraved. But not only are we depraved, we are totally depraved. Um, Now, I don't know about you, but I don't choose, I think, to sin actively all day, every day. Maybe you do that. If so, we need to talk. Um, But our lives, you know, are not not (coughs) sin to sin to sin every day. There are periods, by God's grace, in which we do good things. So what does it mean to be totally depraved? In what sense is our depravity total? Well, total here refers to total in all aspects of our being. That is, the scope of depravity is every aspect of our lives. That means that there's no aspect of your life in which the Bible says you are holy here and this is unaffected by your sinful nature. Your prayer life is depraved. Your Bible reading is depraved. Your social life is depraved. Your relationships are depraved and not what God desired them to be. Your spiritual life is depraved. Your eating habits are depraved. Your love for your children, as good as it might be, is in some sense depraved. Your ability to work hard is depraved. The thing that you are the very best at in your life is affected by your depravity. And that means that absolutely nothing you can do, from the very worst thing to the very best thing, is depraved. If you were the number one virtuoso in music in the world, the music you would produce would still be lacking in God's sight because of your depraved nature. So not only can you not live up to what God wants you to do, even the good that you do takes you further away from him. So if if this is the standard that God requires for us to work up to, every action we take, even the good actions, actually walk us in the wrong direction. And the good things we do, we walk away from God. That's what our depravity means. That is who you and I are. It's a pretty grim assessment. So if that's what our depravity is, how did we get here? Where does our depravity come from? 
To ask this another way, uh, are we sinners because we have sinned? Or do we sin because we are sinners? Consider that for a moment. Does our nature and our identity change because we sin? That is, do we become sinners when we sin? Or does our sin flow from our nature? Now, to sin, it means to do anything that goes against God's good and perfect plan for us. And so sin can be anything that goes against the standard that God has put into place, you know, God's moral law. But it's also failing to do what is right. So, for example, if you see an injustice which you have the capacity to change and you do nothing, that is sin too. So now why do we sin? Do we, why do we fail to do the good we want to do, as Paul says here in Romans 7, and end up doing the evil we don't want to do? Do we become sinners, you know, sometime around the age of three, when you commit your first act of wrongful disobedience? Or do we sin at three years old and assert our wrongful disobedience because we are by nature sinners? The doctrine of total depravity teaches us that we sin because we are sinners. We are totally depraved because that is our identity and our nature. In fact, we cannot help it. It is who we are. So where does this nature come from? Well, We actually inherit it from our original parents. We inherit our sin. Sin is part of every human being because we have inherited from our parents and they from their parents and they from theirs and so on. And any teenager who has ever lived knows how sinful their parents are. Uh, And so it goes all the way back to Adam. Now, you may have never considered this before, but the way God has designed spiritual things to be means that you can inherit them, like DNA from your parents. There are spiritual aspects that are part of our inheritance. Consider, for example, the people you know. There there might be the case where you know someone who's a great prayer warrior, for example. And their parents and their grandparents were often great prayer warriors. Now, that's not just nurture. That is nature. That is inherited. Some of the greatest evangelists are children of great evangelists, and so on. Our spiritual nature is, in a sense... Part of our DNA. And the Bible shows us that this is true, although it often uses the negative example. For example, consider Jacob, the great patriarch of Israel. Uh, He was a product of his mother's favoritism. He was her favorite child, and when he grew up to have kids, he had a favorite child, that is Joseph. And in both the cases of Joseph and Jacob, their parents' favoritism wrecked their family homes spiritually, physically, relationally, and nevertheless, this tendency to sin had been inherited. And we see that is true today in all kinds of ways. Children of alcoholics are far more likely to be substance abusers too. When you grow up in a home filled with rage and anger, you are far more likely to be rageful and angry. The point is this, our sinful spiritual tendencies are inherited in the same way as our sin nature is inherited. Romans 5.12 says it this way, it says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. We get our sin nature from our parents. 
which incidentally is why we cannot believe in a sort of general evolution of mankind. There actually had to be a physical, singular and literal Adam and Eve. And it is for this reason why when Jesus was conceived, it had to be clear, the Bible makes it clear that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Matthew is very clear on this when he writes in Matthew 1, uh, verse 24 and 25. So he's talking about Joseph. He just um, found out that Mary was pregnant. When Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him, and he married her. But he did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son, and they named him Jesus. Jesus had to be born not of a man, not of Adam's line, but of God. For the plan of salvation to work, Jesus had to not inherit Adam's nature, his sinful nature, to be able to not sin. Which incidentally is also why we have to hold to the fact that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And incidentally why we have to reject the Catholic Church's doctrine of Mary's sinlessness because it makes no sense. She too inherited sin from her parents and was a sinner herself. Yes, she was highly favoured by God, but that doesn't mean she's sinless. And so our sinful state comes from our nature. We sin because we are sinners. Ephesians 2 describes us this way. You are by nature children of God's wrath. That's who the Bible says you are. If you want to be wise in Aristotle's eyes, you've got to know who you are. And the Bible says you are a child of wrath. And that is completely different to how our world sees human beings. As a society, we believe that humans are essentially and basically good. Yes, we get a few things wrong from time to time. And depending on what those few things are, if you could just fix that, the world would be made better. This is what parents say of their children who end up growing up and living a bad life. You know, we say things like, he's a good boy. He's just made a few bad choices. Or we might say something like, it's so unfair that this bad thing has happened to him or her because they are such good people. Why is it that bad things happen to good people? The reality, friends, is that by God's standard, there are no good boys who make poor decisions and there are no good people to whom bad stuff can happen. There are only bad people who sometimes get it right. And when we hear that, we can be pretty offended, I think, yeah? I don't like being told I'm totally depraved. You probably don't like being reminded that in light of God's law, your life is totally without merit. And that every action you do, every good thing you do, so misses the mark that you drive yourself further away from God. Right? That's offensive. But the reason that offends us so is because we have bought into this worldview of humanity's essential goodness. But if we are truly honest with ourselves, if we pause for a moment and reflect just about our lives, let alone the people around us, all of us have experienced our sin nature asserting itself, haven't we? It's not just that we don't obey God's laws, although, if we're honest, we don't do that. It's that we don't even obey the laws we put in place for ourselves. 
apart from God. Remember that promise you made to yourself the last time that you did that thing? That this would be the last time in fact? And the next time you found yourself in that same situation, you fell right back into that same trap? Remember that commitment you made to God that you were done with this particular sin, but tomorrow you find yourself at the end of the day doing exactly the same thing, sometimes without even having realised that you were doing the wrong thing until the guilt hits you? Or what about those things in your heart that you know are wrong, that you know are against God's law, that you know actually go up against your own personal morality, but when you think about it, that sin just seems so good right now. And so you start rationalising. You start telling yourself, this will be the last time. I won't ever do that again, but I have to grab hold of this opportunity because I don't know when it's going to arrive again. And so you actively choose the wrong thing, even though you know it's wrong by God's law, even though you know it's wrong by your own morality, just because in the moment you believe that it is good, it's going to be good for you. And that's just what we decent, good Christian people do. Imagine what the rest of these miserable sinners are actually like. Huh? You see, the problem is our nature. Our nature is broken and depraved and flawed, and that is who we are apart from Christ. So if our sin nature is our problem, and it is our sin nature that makes us so depraved, what is the solution? Well, we need a new nature, don't we? We need to be changed on the fundamental level. The solution to our depraved nature is unsurprisingly Jesus Christ. That's why Paul in Romans 7, he's talking about how wretched he is. It's so, he says it's so terrible that he knows the good he wants to do, but he, he just can't do it. He knows the evil he doesn't want to do, but he just keeps on doing it. He's talking about his total depravity, his sin nature. And then he cries out, who will save me from this body of death? See, I, I can relate to that. I think sometimes we all feel trapped in that. Who will save me from this body of death, this will that only wants to do evil? Paul's response to his own question is, thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. You see, friends, when you become a believer, when you become a Christian, when you come to believe in Jesus, there is a transfer that happens, a spiritual transfer that happens. What happens is that you get taken out of Adam's family line and get transferred into Jesus' family line. You are adopted into the family of Christ. You are no longer bound by the rules of Adam or Adam's nature. You are set free from this body of death, from this slavery to sin. You are transferred into Christ, which is why the New Testament so often uses the phrase, you know, Christians are in Christ. It means we inherit a new nature from him. And we become slaves, not to sin, but to righteousness. And what happens to our old life? I mean, we still live in the same bodies, don't we? The consequences of our choices still remain. In, in God's sight, what happens to all of that, all the evil and sin that we've done? 
These things can't just be swept under the carpet as if God just ignores them. If he did that, he would be unjust, right? Evil demands justice. And so if God just ignored our sin, he would be unjust. So God can't do that. What happens is that when we are transferred into Christ, our old self is crucified with Jesus. Our sins are paid for by him. In that moment, the death um, death comes to our old bodies. Death is a thing that separates things spiritually, isn't it? And so when Jesus died and he took on himself our sin and our sin nature and he died, he separates us when we are in Christ from our old nature. His death breaks apart the power that ruled our old nature and says, you are now one of mine and you have a new nature. And that's why we call it being born again. You have a new nature. And as a Christian now, you actually have the choice to serve God and worship him and seek to live for him or to sin. Before the Holy Spirit converted you, you had no choice other than to sin. And even the good things you did took you further away from God. But now because you've been separated from your old nature, you have the choice to worship God and live for him. But it is separated, it's not eradicated. Your old nature won't completely be vanquished until Jesus comes again. But in this life, the Holy Spirit empowers you to choose God. We know that even though we may want to live for Jesus, we still go wrong sometimes. But the difference is, if you are a Christian in this life, you also go right sometimes. And this life becomes about sanctification, you know, it becomes about living for Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why James in James chapter 4 verse 7 can say, Therefore submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's not possible if you are still in your sinful nature. A Christian can actually do that because we have the Holy Power, uh, Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit. In essence, that's what the doctrine of total depravity is. You are totally depraved. Without God actively intervening in your life, you will only ever hate him and choose to run away from him and not worship him and not do anything good and even the good you do will push you further away from him. But in Jesus Christ, if you trust him, you are transferred from your old nature to a new nature. Total depravity. Now, what difference does that make for our lives? I can think of four really quick applications. Firstly, the doctrine of total depravity is essential for us to grapple with if we want to be assured of our salvation. Now, when we consider who we really are in light of this doctrine, we should reject any idea that somehow I chose God before he chose me, right? If my salvation depended on me choosing Christ, then there is absolutely no stability, no solid ground, no foundation upon which I can build because I might later on choose to walk away from God and go my own way. But if my salvation is depending on God's choice of me first, while I was still stuck in my sin with absolutely no way out and nothing to recommend me to God, 
Well, then my salvation is sure and certain. I can trust in him even though I cannot trust myself. So the doctrine of total depravity actually gives us assurance in the periods where we doubt, where we wander, that we are still loved by God because it doesn't depend on us. Secondly, total depravity must humble our pride. We started this morning by quoting Aristotle, knowing yourself is the beginning of all wisdom, so who are you? Well, I'm a totally depraved sinner entirely, unable to do anything that pleases God without his intervention. So to Aristotle, the Bible will say, actually, no, it's the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of all wisdom. Because once we have grappled with our own depraved nature, we are put in our right place before God, are we not? You see, ever since Adam and Eve thought that they could be like God, the human race has been infected with pride. And Christians even hate this doctrine. Why? Because it targets that root problem, pride. The doctrine of total depravity takes away any pride we might have before God because there is absolutely nothing that you and I can do to make us right before God. You do not contribute anything to your salvation other than the sin that made it necessary, as Jonathan Edwards said. And you are saved only by God's sovereign choice to which you respond in faith through Jesus' work on the cross. There is no room to say, I did that. Thirdly, the doctrine of total depravity causes me to fear trusting in myself. And I think this is very important for us living in society today. The world will tell you, go and do what makes you happy. Follow your heart. Do what your heart says. Listen to your heart. But we, when we grow to know our hearts, do you really want to do that? Do you want to follow the sin that lives there? When we come to realize that the victory over sin we have is only through the power of the Holy Spirit when we've been chosen by God, why would you want to trust in yourself? We can only run to our Savior who said, apart from me, you can do nothing. The best thing that you can do is not listen to your heart, but listen to God through his word. Total depravity warns us against following our hearts. So, assurance of salvation, humility, stop trusting our heart. And finally, it should move us to greater love and devotion to God for his amazing grace. Here is the thing. If you have been forgiven little, then you will love little. The doctrine of total depravity recaptures the depths in your mind of what you have been saved from. A Christianity that does not cut to the heart and does not confront the proud heart of you, a sinner, with the truth of our position before God as utterly hopeless has not been taught correctly. The truth is we are not worth saving. 
Even the best of us are actually worth suffering a million times over the eternity in hell that we deserve. To live forever with Satan and the demons. That's all of us. But as Charles Spurgeon said, the man who has stood before God convicted and condemned with a rope around his neck is the man who will weep for joy when he is pardoned. The man who will hate that evil which has been forgiven him. And the man who will live to the honour of the Redeemer by whose blood he has been cleansed. The more you realise how depraved you are, the more you will run to the cross and cling to it. The doctrine of total depravity holds up a mirror to our souls. So see who you really are. Despair rightly. Run to the cross. Cling to it. And praise Jesus eternally for what he has done for you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again this morning that you can see, uh, that you reveal to us who we really are. How we have nothing to recommend us to you. And yet you loved us anyway. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That while we were still objects of wrath, children of wrath, you chose us. Lord, what a blessing it is to be adopted into your family, to be given a new nature as believers. And we are set free from this body of death. Help us now, Lord, to live in response to that, a life that actually is pleasing to you, which we can do through your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.